Our passage today is Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Luke chapter 19 is where we will be located. So go ahead and take your Bibles and find that portion of Scripture, Luke chapter 19. And as you do, we have a special treat for you this morning. Some of the kids of Quail are going to read that passage to you from their homes. So go ahead and find Luke chapter 19 and you follow along as they read. Luke 19, 20 and 40. After telling the story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walk, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the town of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them. As you enter, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found a, the young donkey. It was there just as Jesus had told them. They were untying the colt when its owners came. The owners asked them, why are you untying it? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing, uh, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. There the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God with joy. In loud voices they praised him for all the miracles they have seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. I'll tell you, he replied. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Our key concept this morning is there is power in mercy. Power in mercy. As we, we've been saying today, we call Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus was honored with the parade into the city of Jerusalem. Now, we'll consider the way that Luke tells the story. But in fact, Luke does not mention palms. Earlier, we read the account from the Gospel of John. He's the one who mentions palms. And as we combine the stories together, we see that the crowd, as they welcome Jesus coming into the city, they, they put down cloaks, their outer garments on the ground, and hastily cut palm branches. And they, they cover the road with both a combination of their cloaks and palm branches to show respect. It's almost as if they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, your feet and the feet of those who are with you do not even need to touch dirt. We honor you that much. We esteem you that highly. It was all to honor him. But in fact, by the standards of the Romans, that would have been looking on. It would have seemed probably to be a meager effort. The Roman soldiers, no doubt, would have seen the way that Rome threw parades for those that they were honoring. The kind of parade we're envisioning was called a triumph, and they were given to honor the victorious general that was coming home after a war or a great battle. And he's come back to this, he comes back to the city of Rome with the spoils of war. And if you were honored with a triumph, you were, as the hero, given the chance to ride in a golden chariot pulled by white stallions. And behind the hero would come his troops 
with all of their gear polished and gleaming in the sun. And behind the troops would come the banners of the armies that you have vanquished. And behind the banners have, would come the loot, the spoils of war that you're bringing back to Rome to enrich the city. And if you're lucky, behind all of that was the humiliated king that you've defeated now in chains. Think back to some of the gladiator movies you've seen or Ben-Hur and so forth. That's what the Romans were used to when they gave a parade. But for Jesus, it was very different. In Luke chapter 19, uh, the passage that we've been reading today in verse 35, we'll pick up the way it's described. Verse 35 says, Speaking of the donkey, they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on a colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. Not a stallion, but a borrowed donkey. Not a saddle, but a coat serving as a saddle. No armies, just peasants. And to top it off, we, we, we learn later in the passage that Jesus actually begins to weep. To the Romans, it didn't look very powerful. It didn't look very threatening. Yet today, I'd like you to see that the power is not in the might. The power is in the mercy. Jesus shows mercy as he enters Jerusalem. God-like mercy. And that God-like mercy is found in his, first of all, his reception of the words of the crowd. In verse 38, the crowd shouts, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're recognizing Jesus as the king. And he is receiving their praise. He's receiving that title. That is a bit of a shock to those of us who have been following the life and the career of Jesus through the Gospels. Up until now, every time the crowd wanted to honor him as king or even call him Messiah, Jesus has told the people to keep quiet, not to mention it. But the time for secrecy is over. Now it's time for truth. Jesus is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But this is a small crowd. In a, in a large city, and it's a city overflowing with tourists on a holiday season. And by Friday, the voices that were for him will be drowned out by the voices that are against him. In Matthew chapter 27, it says, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. See, there were vast numbers of people in Jerusalem at that time who were able and willing to be manipulated by the will of the religious establishment. But even as they're doing all of this, all these events are under Jesus' control. He's acting with God-like mercy, moving towards the cross. He has sovereign mercy. I heard a story about a college football, teams that, a football team that hit upon rough times. Their starting quarterback had been injured, and on game day, their second-string quarterback came down with the flu, and they went to their third-string quarterback, who had actually been recruited out of high school uh, as a punter, uh, and, uh, but he played a little bit of quarterback, and they asked him to, to go in to the game. 
To make matters worse, the team was on their own three-yard line, and the coach's only thought was, let's get the ball away from the end zone so that we can punt the ball and get some space. And so he sent in to the third-string quarterback three plays that he was to, 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 to call in a row. I want, you to, I want you to hand off to the fullback for two plays and then as, as, get him as far as he can and then punt the ball. And so that's what they did. The first play they handed to the fullback and the fullback ran, but lo and behold, the fullback broke free and he ran for 45 yards, a tremendous gain. The second play was the exact same play that the coach had sent in. And once again, the fullback broke free and he ran all the way down to the two yard line of the opposing team. And when it came time for that third, that third play, they were in line for a touchdown. Things were set up that they could go in for the score. But instead, the quarterback punted the ball into the stands. There was no score. There was no touchdown. No points. And the coach grabbed that quarterback afterwards and he said, what were you thinking? And the answer was, I was thinking, what kind of a rotten coach sends in that third play? And the reason he called that play was he couldn't foresee that they would get that far downfield. He couldn't imagine that kind of a future. But what I want you to know about what Jesus is experiencing on Palm Sunday, he does foresee the future. He sees his future and he sees your future. Jesus perfectly understands what's coming his way. In Luke chapter 18, he said this, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. There it is in graphic detail. He has foreseen all these events, predicted exactly what's going to happen. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. Ultimately, he's going to be killed and then resurrected. But for the moment, he rightly receives their praise. Even though that's the future that he knows is coming, as he walks down that road or rides on that donkey, he receives the praise from the folks on the side of the road because they are doing what they are created to do, and that is to give glory to God and to praise Him. All creation, including humanity, is designed to praise God, and that worship will be accomplished no matter what. In fact, Jesus, in response to criticism, says in verse 40, I tell you, if they, the crowd, keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus is worthy of praise. Now you wonder to yourself, if all of that is true, and it is, could he not have changed the minds of the Pharisees? Could he not have changed the minds of the Sanhedrin? Could he not have changed the minds of the Romans? Of course he could have. But that's not the mission. The mission is toward the cross, not away from the cross. It's toward the suffering, not away for the, from the suffering. Because this is mercy, sovereign mercy, that controls the present and foresees the future and steers history towards a desired end. This is God-like mercy. Now, we don't possess that kind of power. We don't possess the unseen hand that guides the affairs with perfect wisdom. But we are called to recognize that sovereign mercy when we see it. 
We're called to be grateful for it, that there is one above us and greater than us who is motivated only by love and is willing to demonstrate even suffering so that you and I can experience mercy. But embedded in this story, there is elements of mercy that we can mimic, that we can live out and emulate. And if the first one is seen in verse 41. It's what I'll call tender mercy. Look there. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. There's a tenderness there, a tenderness that we are meant to emulate if we are going to be Christ followers and Christ-like. Jesus shows us that he feels sorry for the situation, and he's emotionally moved as he ponders what's coming for Jerusalem, the city that he loves. He's thinking about the consequences that will fall on these people. You see, they are being led by blind leaders that will be demonstrated in just the next few days, but it is ongoing, and it will eventually lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. The day is not far off where rebellion and political turmoil will so come to a head that Rome will finally have had enough of these Jewish people who simply do not recognize that they have been conquered. And in 70 AD, the city is overrun, the walls are breached, the temple is burned, and hundreds of thousands are killed. And Jesus here, foreseeing that future, is weeping over Jerusalem. The people are scattered at that time, and just 60 years or so after that, they will be driven from the city, and the nation will cease to exist as a country until 1947. And Jesus sees all of that, and he weeps for their suffering. He shows us a tender heart of mercy that we must emulate. Tender mercy for those who are suffering ought to be part of the people of God as it was for Christ himself. We too must have tears for the pain and the ignorance in the world. We too must be tenderly moved at the needs that are all around us. Even if some people have brought this situation on themselves, which these people had that Jesus was weeping for, but still he had tender mercy for them. Mercy is the impulse that makes us sensitive to respond to the hurts of others. Mercy reminds us that the hurts we see, the poverty, the crime, the abuse, the injustice, even this virus and the, the pandemic that's happening right now, all of this is a result of sin. And mercy cares to meet the needs. One author describes the impact of sin in our lives by comparing that to the solar system. This is the comparison he makes. He says, the solar system works because the planets circle the sun. In other words, the sun is the center. And as the planets stay in line and respect that center, the solar system works. But if the planets were to rebel and try to go their own way, imagine the catastrophic results. There would be collisions. There would be destruction. Probably there would be no life as we know it. And that's our rebellion against God. God should be the center of our life. 
We revolve around him in a sense, but sin causes us to rebel against that and try to go our own way. And what happens is the inevitable destruction and collision between humanity and God and humanity and the way that God has designed us to live. As we lose God as the center of our life, our desires become perverted. Our priorities are out of whack. Instead of living that straight pathway that he has for us, we follow all sorts of detours in life because God as the center of our life is missing. But it is in Jesus that that harmony is restored. Sin had brought hurt to our human experience. Sin has hurt us in many ways. At the most basic level, sin has brought us a spiritual damage that has alienated us from God. Sin hurts us on a social level. It, it twists human relationships so often they are hurtful and painful. It hurts us on a societal level. Poverty, neglect, crime, and abuse all exist because our world is broken because of sin. And it hurts us on a physical level. Things and people are fragile. We're learning that once again. A virus the size of a microbe can grind the world systems to a standstill, can endanger tens of thousands of lives. It's all because of sin. But what we see in Jesus is the solution to that problem. We see the response of mercy that meets the need on all those levels. And the most basic one is our standing with God. Because he is tender-hearted towards us. And he shows us the model that we must be towards others, giving and showing a tender heart. But there's another kind of mercy that we can emulate. Jesus shows us sacrificial mercy. As he is entering Jerusalem, he's going down the Mount of Olives. And on Thursday of this week that we call Holy Week, he'll be back up on the Mount of Olives, on that very hill that he's descending. And he'll enter the Garden of Gethsemane there, a grove of olive trees, and he'll pray. And part of the prayer will be this, recorded in Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The cup is suffering. In the short term will be horribly painful, even though the long term will be glorious. He knows that he will rise again, and he also knows that the only way to fulfill the mission that he is on is to experience suffering and sacrifice for us. You see, he has to suffer, even though it's painful even to think about. And it's due to his willingness to sacrifice for us that we get the chance to experience the mercy that God offers. Because this is what it takes to let mercy loose. It takes sacrifice. And sometimes it takes suffering. That gives us a model for our ministries of mercy today. We are here as believers in Jesus to be Christ-like. Showing mercy is not an optional thing. It's not an additional thing that we can add on to the Christian life. It is the inevitable sign that we are the followers of Christ. And letting mercy loose in our lives will call for sacrifice as well. It always does. And when we let mercy loose, it makes a difference. The kind of mercy that Jesus shows us in the events of this Holy Week, opens the door of salvation for all who believe. 
In other words, the mercy is powerful. It is effective. And that's the standard that we want for our efforts as well. Not that we can make an atoning sacrifice. There's only one who can do that. But we can make a difference here and now in our world that will affect not only the way that people live today, but will affect their eternal destiny. And it all comes from the gospel call to repentance and to put faith in Jesus Christ and his work. You see, that mercy that finds a difference needs to be connected to Christ. And maybe this week, more than any other week, that mercy needs to be found in the way you interact with your family. Your family is the front lines of mercy. And in this experience that we're going through today, some of us are spending more time in close quarters with family than we're used to. And some of the result of that is inevitably tension. Here, often, our efforts for mercy fails because we see our families, warts and all, and, and we say to ourselves, well, they don't deserve mercy. But that's just when mercy is needed most of all. And when the opportunity is missed, a brick in the wall of division is placed in place once again, and we are separated, families torn apart. I encourage you in this time of being quarantined in our homes and restricted in our movements and together maybe more than we're used to, let mercy loose in your family and let mercy loose in your neighborhood, in your community. Right now, call up the, the person who's homebound. Call up those who you care about, the elderly, those who are vulnerable and needy. Make sure that they are connected to you and that mercy is offered because mercy makes a difference. And that mercy that makes that difference comes from Jesus Christ and is credited to Jesus Christ. Mercy in Christ's name is the issue. We must always point towards him. We must let it be known that our impulse to care for one another and to care for our world and community comes because we have felt mercy in our own life and we want to give it to others. All of this begins in a moment when you receive the mercy that Jesus offers. We don't deserve it. It comes to us freely. But Jesus offers for each of us that he will let mercy loose in our lives if we let him. Let me tell you a story. Taylor Storch is a 13-year-old girl having a great day of skiing when the unbelievable and unthinkable happened. She crashed skiing down the mountain and died from her injuries. And Tara and Todd Storch went through the nightmare of having to plan a funeral and a burial for their 13-year-old daughter. Part of the process early on in kind of getting their head around what was needed here was to decide whether or not they would donate Taylor's organs. And they decided that they would, but with this proviso. They, they decided that Tara, Taylor's mom, would, they would give the heart if she would be able to listen to the heart that was implanted in another if the, if the heart transplant would take place. And that's just what happened. A, man, a woman named Patricia, who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, received that heart. And months later, Tara and Patricia got together and Tara got a stethoscope, and she listened to the heart of her child 
beat in the chest of another. It was a life-giving gift of mercy that came at a tragic moment. But I tell you that story because in a strange way, when you turn to Jesus, his heart begins to beat in you. You begin to be changed because he is recreating you from the inside out because of his mercy and love for you. I wonder if you've received that cleansing touch, life-changing forgiveness. This is the start of Passion Week. It's going to end on Good Friday with Jesus on the cross, where he will suffer to make mercy available to you and to me. It will culminate on Resurrection Sunday when he has victory over death. And Paul, the apostle in the book of Romans, explains why all of this happened this way. In Romans chapter 3, we read this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. You see, in God's justice, he knew that the guilt of sin had to be paid for. And he recognized that the cost to pay for it would be the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Here's why. Going forward in the book of Romans, chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages is the result of sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He took on himself the, the result of the guilt of our sin. And in so doing, we are able to find in him the forgiveness that he offers us. He took the penalty that we deserved, and now that penalty has been served. And a gift of mercy and grace is offered. And that forgiveness not only changes our eternal destiny, it changes our life right here, right now, every single day. But like any gift, that gift of mercy has to be received in order to make it yours. You have to say yes and unwrap that gift and possess it as your own. And how do you do that in spiritual terms? How do we receive a gift that happens by faith? Well, we receive it by extending our trust and opening up our lives and our hearts and our experience to the touch of the Master, Jesus, by saying yes to all that he offers. It is indeed a decision of faith. And it happens on the inside, but it changes everything. Have you ever made that choice? Have you ever said yes to the forgiveness that Jesus offers you? For some of you, maybe that's just what you need to do. And if that's what you need to do and you know that you need to do it, I'm going to help you this morning by simply saying a prayer. And I'm going to ask you to repeat that prayer silently where you sit. God will hear. Repeat that prayer after me and allow Jesus to hear the expression of your faith. So why don't we all just bow for a word of prayer, no matter where you are, just bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're in a situation where you know that you need to receive that gift of mercy for the first time, you silently pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I need you.
I want the mercy that you offer. I believe that you died on the cross for me. You paid the price. I believe that you rose again. And today, you can forgive my sin. I want to be your child. Forgive me. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I don't know how many people are praying that prayer. But you know, because you're the one who has brought them to the moment where they're sensing the need. You, Holy Spirit, have brought that ministry of conviction. And Lord, if there are those who are saying yes to your mercy for the very first time, I pray that they would know that things are changing on the inside. And I pray that they would be brought to a fellowship of believers and that they would be in the word and that they would be encouraged by others. Help us band together to represent you well. Move in and through us and bless those who are making that choice. But for all of us, Lord, many of us have made that decision years ago and we're walking with you by faith. But right now we're simply reminded that you always have mercy in mind for us. And there, there is power in your mercy. Help us to not only receive that love, but to be giving mercy away where we can so that we can demonstrate that we are your children. We are part of your family. We give you praise for that. Thank you in advance for that chance. In your name we pray it. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning to receive Christ, I'd like to know about it. And I'd like to pray for you particularly. And I'd like to send you a piece of literature that can help you uh, along the way. It's this booklet called Now What? Living Your Faith, uh, Living Out Your Christian Faith. And, and I would be happy to send that to you. And the way that we can make that happen is this. If you would text the word faith to 209-257-8768, we will respond to that text with, by asking you with your, for your contact information. I'll be able to send you that booklet and we'll be praying for you as you grow in Christ. So go ahead and, and make that text, the word faith, to 209-257-8768 and we'll respond. Mercy works. Mercy makes a difference. Melissa is here to lead us once more in a song. For the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. You alone are my strength, my shield. So much more than any 
shield to you alone may my spirit yield you alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship thee I want you I want you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. Amen. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. Let's sing it. You alone are my strength, my shield. I found this prayer years ago, and I'd like to close our service today with it. It goes like this, just in an attitude of prayer, listen to these words. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, and to be what you require. Lord, that is our prayer. Thank you for watching our broadcast today. God bless you.